want to begin tonight in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I can remember when my girls were younger and I would be working on a vehicle or uh, I'd be building something or whatever. <clears throat> Usually, uh, they'd want to come out and kind of look around see what was going on and I can remember one time Cameron came out. I was putting brakes. We were living in Memphis on a on a one of our widow's uh, uh, cars, and uh, you know that was one time I remember her helping me. And I think that was enough for her, and so she decided she wasn't interested in that anymore. And uh, I can remember Alexandria would help me a lot. She would come out, and uh, she helped me put struts on a van one time. Helped me put shocks on them uh, when uh I had, uh, uh, not last year, year before or something, I had, uh, one of the, uh, back injections and so I took a chair out, sat down in front of my, uh, in front of the van and she put on a sensor for me. I just told her where it was and so she was able to do that. But you don't just learn to do that stuff overnight, right? You gotta kinda learn what the tools are and, and so I can remember early on I would say, hey, hand me those, uh, uh, wire pliers or give me that, uh, wrench or that whatever the case may be, that adjustable wrench. And, and undoubtedly, she'd pick up something that wasn't that particular tool. Well, she didn't know, and I'd say, no, not that one. And But what, what do you need after you say, no, not that one? Which one it is, right? No, it's the one with the blue handles, or it's the one with the orange handle, or whatever the case may be. And so I make that point to address the passage before us. Let's notice... Hebrews 10, verse 25. Hebrews 10, verse 25, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching." That's a wonderful verse. And hardly ever is it used correctly. Someone wants to to pick out verse 25, rightly so, talking about... uh, uh, coming together and attending service and and being with one another. Absolutely. But it's never used properly, hardly. And I've been guilty of that as much as anyone. Notice how the verse starts. It says, not forsaking the assembly. Well, what comes before it? Hand me the, the channel locks. No, not that one. And then you're standing there waiting. So I just, okay, let me try that. No, not that one. Well, that could go on for days, couldn't it? We need to know what is before the not. No, don't stand there. No, don't stand there either. No, don't pick that up. Well, I need some information. Okay, don't stand there. Stand over there, right? Don't stand beside the table. Stand behind the table. Or don't go in that door. Go in the other door. So we have to have some information, right? The writer of Hebrews commanded the the Christians, the Jews who had converted to Christianity, commanded them to do certain things. Let's read the passage, at least uh, the, uh, the necessary verses prior to 25. Let's begin with verse 23. And we could go all the way up to 19, but we're just going to notice 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Is this about coming together and, and attending services? Yes, that's part of it. But there's so much more to this passage. The, the stuff before the not. Why? Why should we not forsake the assembly? That doesn't mean that from time to time we, we miss a service and we're going to lose our soul for that. You know, sometimes we're not healthy enough to come to services, right? What if, uh, you know, you're, you're traveling down the road and, and there's a car wreck in front of you and you get stopped in the road and you can't make it? You know, that's out of, that's beyond our control, right? What the Lord's talking about here, particularly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, is making that your habit, the manner of some, right? But that's just a part of it. We've got to read what comes before it that gives us why we don't want to do that, right? The writer of Hebrews commanded Christians to provoke those we love. Now, that's the title of the sermon tonight. Provoking those we love. Now, what do we normally think of when we hear that word provoke? Well, it's it's negative, right? You want to provoke uh, someone, you're, you're irritating someone, or, or you're doing this, or someone has provoked you. Uh, you know, you, you had a spat with, with your friend or with someone who maybe is not your friend, and someone says, well, why are you doing that? Well, he provoked me. What do you expect me to do, right? That's kind of the, the context that we think of. Well, that's not what provoke means. I mean, it can mean that, right? But that's not what the word provoke mean. Uh, means <clears throat> provoke simply means this to cause the occurrence of a feeling or an action to make something happen that's neither good nor bad is it that's kind of neutral to cause an emotion or a feeling to make something happen that can be bad but it can be good so in, in our context of what we're talking about and what the writer of Hebrews spoke about is something that's good. So what are we provoking? To love and to good works, right? And um, we are to come together and to encourage and uplift those around us. We're to come together and when we understand that the people sitting next to us love us and we love them, doesn't the work that the Christian in which he involves himself, doesn't it become much easier and more enjoyable? When we look around and we think, boy, we've got a house, a house full of folks here and every one of them loves me. You know. Well, doesn't Rick get on your nerves a little bit? Yeah, from time to time, but I still love him. Right? That's a whole idea. Right? You know, I tell people, uh, you know, I'm going to get on your nerves at some point, but I still love you and you got to love me back because that's what God said, right? And so we just have to move from there and, and, and head forward doing what we're supposed to do. Let me tell you a little story I read one time. I don't know if this is true, probably not, but it makes a great illustration. Two men were in a hospital bed, both severely ill. One uh, was by the only window in the room and throughout the day, they would raise him up in a sitting position so his lungs could drain of liquid, the fluid that was in them, to help. And he would look out that window, and he would talk to his uh, his neighbor, his roommate, 
His roommate couldn't sit up. He had to lay flat on his back 24-7. And so he would talk about what he saw outside. He would talk about the beautiful lake. He would talk about the swans and the couples holding hands and the children playing. He would look at the and tell about the skyline of the city and all the beautiful things. And, and when he was thoroughly through explaining all the beautiful things that he saw, his roommate would close his eyes and he would think about all those wonderful things in life that he couldn't see for himself. Well, as time went on, of course, the health they were in, the, the man who was beside the window passed away. And it just just destroyed his roommate. He just looked forward to the times when, when he would tell him what was on the other side of that wall. Well, the nurse came in and after his friend had passed away and, and he said, you know, can I, can I have this place over by the window? And she said, sure. So she pushed him over there and, and he struggled with all his might and he finally kind of got up on one elbow and he was able to look out that window and it was a blank wall. There was nothing there. And he said, he said, well, I just don't understand. So the nurse came back in and he said, look, I know that there's lakes and the skyline and people enjoying each other and the swans and the ducks and all those things. He told me about it. She said, he was blind. He was blind. He was just trying to encourage you. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Now, he's not talking about us telling someone something that's not factual. But the illustration is we understand it, right? We are to love each other and encourage one another. Does that mean we don't get on each other's nerves from time to time? That's not what it means. I get on Kathy's nerves probably a lot. Okay? But we are to encourage one another through love, right? We're to overcome that. And that's what Christians are supposed to do to the brethren. Not just to the brethren, but other people as well. So when we look in Hebrews chapter 10, look, let's look at verse 25. It's applicable. It's in there for a reason. It says the truth and teaches the truth. But brethren, let's back up and let's see the why before we get to the not. And understand that a little better also. I want us to consider this text for just a few moments. This isn't going to take us long. But we need to to understand how do we go about provoking those we love. Well, here's our first point. We have to persevere ourselves, right? Someone has to maybe be the first one to provoke love and good works. There always has to be a first person, right? There was a man in, <clears throat> when we were in Memphis, and, and I've never been around a more miserable human in my life. I'll just tell you, you never had a good day. He was always upset and mad about something. He had uh, the... Uh, uh, the congregation book that had everybody's picture in it and, and, uh, the phone numbers and the addresses. And he, I went over to his house and visited him one time. And I think I probably mentioned this, but he had a date by everybody in there. That's the last time that person spoke to me. I said, Jack, when did you speak to them? He had never been the first person to speak to anybody, ever. He came, he'd come in the building, he'd walk right by the audio video room and, and he would start mumbling because those men in there who were working hard to try to get things running and going didn't stop what they were doing and run out there and cater to Jack. I said, Jack, did you say hello to those fellas who are in there working to make sure you can hear me when I'm preaching or hear the song leader? 
Well, I shouldn't have. I said, why shouldn't you have to? Why? Why should they have to and you not? See, someone has to be the first one every time in something, right? I can't think of a thing where people interact where someone doesn't have to go first. You know, you talk to your husband, your wife, someone has to say, I love you first. I guess you could say it at the same time, but, you know, someone has to say, I love you first. Someone has to say hello first. Someone has to extend their hand in friendship and fellowship, right? Someone has to do it. So we are to love and uh, provoke each other to love and to good works. And we are to hold fast our profession of faith. That's how we persevere. We have to maintain faith. We have to stay in the faith. Here's what hold fast means. To hold back, to retain, to keep secure, right? Keep firm possession of it. And we're talking about faith, right? Profession. And we're not talking about what our jobs are. It's what we profess. That's what the word intends, right? What are we professing? Well, I call myself a Christian. I am professing to be a Christian. I have to hold that fast and secure that, right? If I'm not persevering and maintaining my faith, how can I provoke someone to love and good works? I'm going to have to be provoked to love and good works, right? So we have to maintain and persevere. I think uh, when we talk about this idea of faith here, it's really, I believe, better translated hope. You see that in the uh, New King James Version, maybe the American Standard Version, some of the other modern versions. It's our hope. we got to hang on to our hope, right? The hope that we have in God. Don't give it away. Don't let it slip away. Don't not take care of it. But take care of it, right? And so that's what the writer is talking about. He's pleading with these people who were converted from Judaism to Christianity. He's pleading with them. Don't lose what you professed you were. Don't give it away. Hold fast because people had come in and they had tried to convince them to leave Christianity and go back to the law of Moses. It was done. It was done. Paul in his letter to the uh, Colossians said that middle wall of partition been broken down. It's over. The old law does not exist anymore. So they were being encouraged to go back to a law that didn't even exist. How far is that going to get somebody? Not very far, right? So he's pleading, don't give away your profession, what you profess to be, which was a Christian. Why do we do that? Why, why is that so important? To maintain our profession, what we profess of faith. Well, when we persevere and we maintain our faith, we refuse to falter. If we're persevering, that means I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going. That's what the writer's talking about, right? And that, and that has something to do with every aspect of our lives. I used to say every aspect of our Christian lives. You can't really separate the two, can you? Well, I've got my regular life over here, then I've got my Christian life. No, you just have life. And you are a Christian. And you make choices in this life based on the fact that I am a Christian and I'm going to maintain my professing that I am one. I think that's what Jesus intended when He made the statement recorded for us in Matthew 10.32. We use it a lot when we're talking about the plan of salvation, confessing Him before men 
And I think there's an application there, but that's not what the context is. The context, he said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. He's talking about confessing your profession in daily life. You have to live like a Christian. And when someone knows you, they say something's different about that person. They're living like a Christian. Not like the normal world lives, right? They're not participating in those things. And I think Jesus made that very clear in Luke 14, uh, 26 through 33. He wanted the disciples to understand, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to take up your cross and follow me, you're going to have to be able to give up some things. You're going to have to count the cost. You're going to have to understand what it means to be a Christian. And, and to drive that point home, he he spoke two parables. He talked about a man who was who was building a tower, and then he talked about a man who was going to war. Well, the man who was building the tower, it, it, and the idea here is, in a vineyard, there are walls, and what they would do, they would build a little tower, and that was kind of their security. They would be able to look out over the vineyard, and they could make sure no one was coming in and, and destroying what they had or stealing from them. He says that man needs to be able to figure out how much it's going to cost to build that tower. And then he talked about the man who was going to go to war. He needed to understand how many men he needed to be able to go to war and defeat the enemy. Because what happens if if neither one of them counted the cost? Well, you're going to lay the foundation for the tower, and then you're going to run out of money, and everybody's going to ridicule you and make fun of you. The man who goes to war, he he didn't account for how many men he needed. And so... He had to surrender. He had to retreat. He had to put up the, the, the white flag, right? And then he's going to be conquered. And that's not what we have to count the cost. And that's what he, what he was doing when he drove that point home. To be able to provoke one another to, to love and to good works, we have to persevere ourselves, right? We have to get in there and we have to fight hard and we have to overcome the problems in this life. And then, we're not stopping there. Right? The, the writer didn't stop there. We have to make those around us a priority. That's our second point. When do others become a priority? At what point does a person who maybe was a little selfish in life, and, and uh, you know, I can remember being that way when I was younger, and I think maybe a lot of younger folks are that way. We like what we want, and we want to look out for ourselves, and But when do other people become a priority? When do we begin to look at, uh, you know, maybe our parents. I got a little older and I look at my dad and he became a priority for me. And uh, I got married and my my wife became a priority for me. We began to have children and they became a priority. When does that happen? It happens when we consider one another, right? Now, I'm not just considering myself anymore. Other people. I used to tell my dad this, and I guess I've gotten to that point now. Look, I said, man, it's not about you anymore. It's not about you. It's about these ten grandchildren you've got now that that, that love you and want to come and see you. you got to take better care of yourself. That's who it's about. Not about you anymore. Consider other folks, right? So when we make people a priority, we begin to consider them, what they need in life, Right? So we're persevering, and now, remember, what's the whole point here? Provoking. 
trying to get a reaction, trying to to get an action out of someone, provoked to love and good works. They have to be a priority, right? I can't just be worried about myself any longer. You know, it has to be that way because sometimes we have to be the ones who are considering the other person. And do you know what happens the other time? We may have to be the ones that are being considered, right? Everyone wants to help someone, but sometimes we need help ourselves. And that's a little harder to accept. Have you noticed among Christians it's a lot easier to get someone to give than it is to receive? I don't understand it. Well, really, I do. Right? But, brethren, look, we can't give if no one will receive. And so, as we persevere and we maintain our faith and then we make other people a priority, if we're going to be able to do what God wants us to do, we have to be able to be able to give. That means someone has to be the one being considered. I think our consideration of one another is to be a close and sincere regard for the other person. You know, we see it among ourselves, right? If someone's not feeling well, we're concerned about that person. You know, uh, uh, Sandra just got back. You know, we don't like it when she's gone. We're, we're happy that she can go visit her family. But we don't like it when she's gone because we're considering her. We want her here with us, right? And we, we consider Nell or, or uh, you know, Sister Ruth if she's not feeling well or Brother Joe or any number of people. You know, Ron here a few uh, a couple years ago or however long it's been went through a hard time. You know, we didn't know if maybe something bad might really happen to him. You know, we considered that and it was terrible. We didn't like that. Why? It was a priority. That's how we provoke one another. They become the priority. When one uh, of our brothers or sisters are having a difficult time, if they're weeping, we weep. Right? That's the whole point. If they're, if, if they're uh, excited and they're rejoicing, then we come together and we rejoice with them. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. We want to consider our brethren so we can provoke them to continue then we help them make people a priority, right? You see how it just, it, it's like a snowball. It just, it produces after its own kind, right? When you make someone a priority and you teach them what that really means, then they're able to do that as well. And that's how the church grows. Uh, the Greek word from which uh, provoke is translated literally means with a view to incite or stimulate. It's only used in this passage in one other passage, Acts 15.39, right? And that passage, 15.39 of Acts, was the contention between uh, Paul and Barnabas. You recall? Uh, Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark. Paul said, no, he left us once. I'm not bringing him back. And they had this contention, and it was no small contention. But don't you know, even they had this this big contention with one another, they still wanted the other person to be faithful to God and they wanted to provoke to love and to good works. And really what ended up happening, you didn't just have one team of two missionaries, you ended up with two teams of two missionaries, right? And so it worked out well. But that's what we want to do. We want to continue to do that. But we're also to provoke non-Christians, right? And, and we have to be careful about that because sometimes we provoke them negatively, 
right? We have to have a good bedside manner. We have to, we have to teach the truth in love. You know, we're not trying to win a war or win a battle. We're trying to teach the truth. We want people to be able to read the Bible for themselves and see what Jesus says. Let's put away the denominational dogma that the world has. And let's just read what Jesus had to say about things. What the apostles had to say. So let's provoke an interest in that, right? And then when people understand we love them, and it's not just about trying to get another person in the pew, because that's not what it's about. It's about trying to help people get to heaven. Solomon said that the whole of man was to fear God and keep His commandments, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Brethren, that's not just good advice. That's a divine commandment. We have to train people and help them come to an understanding. That's what their whole consists of, right? And that's how we provoke. Then, the writer brings it all together. We've noticed verses 23 and 24. Then he brings it all together in verse 25. How, do, how is the best way for all that stuff to happen? We have to, uh, we have to persevere. We have to make other people a priority. When is the best opportunity to do that? When we're all present together. That's our third and last point. Okay? Faithfulness in attendance is clearly stated. But we have to understand what comes before the not. Right? That's the whole point of it. We are to associate with one another as often as we can. And you know, people have lives. People have, have jobs and they have things to do. And, and you know, when is the time that we really are able to cross paths most of the time and, and fellowship and enjoy one another's company? It's when we come together to worship, right? And when we miss out on that, we're really missing out on a whole lot of things, aren't we? We want to be able to provoke one another. We want to encourage each other. You know, what if we're having a difficult time in life? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it happens. It happens every day, right? Someone's having a hard time. And so, what better time than to come and be with fellow brethren and let them provoke love and good works. Encourage you, right? Encourage you. Like the poor blind man, as he was telling about all the beautiful things on the outside of the window, he was encouraging his friend who couldn't sit up and see anything. But we need to encourage each other, right? And the best opportunity to do that is when we do come together. We're not to forsake our own assembling together, you know. We notice the prohibition in that verse. Not to forsake. Do not be absent from the meetings of the saints. You know, then we have the practice. We're noticing the practice here. It was the custom of some people, right, to do that. Well, that was a bad habit. Some people had the habit of not attending. You know, uh, you can break a bad habit. You can break a bad habit. What about someone who's obeyed the gospel and they've been a little rough in life, you know? Maybe they, they participated in a few things and their language isn't the best that it could be. You know, do they just automatically never slip up and, and, and say something they shouldn't say? Look, when you become a Christian, you gotta stop sinning, period. Okay? But what happens in the Christian life? What, what's First John 1 all about? The occasional sin walking in the light. So when you slip up and you, and maybe you say something you shouldn't say, you recognize it at the moment, right? And so, but over time you break that practice. Look, I, I, I'm the example for that. I obeyed the gospel 
working in a body shop. I decided I was going to straighten myself up and, and I was trying to mix some pain and something went wrong and, and you know, first thing out of my mouth was something that shouldn't have come out of my mouth and I stopped right there and I said, what am I doing? See, that was a practice I was used to doing, but then I had to break it. Right? And so, we need to do that. And when can we do it? We need to come together and encourage each other, right? And when we're able to do that, things are so much better. You know one of the problems across the brotherhood, really, about everywhere I've ever visited, is, and and maybe not even so much with us, but there is usually a huge drop-off from Sunday morning to Sunday night in attendance. And good luck on Wednesday night, right? That's a, that's a problem across the brotherhood. And I think that we, we pound on verse 25 of Hebrews 10 too much without talking about the ones preceding it. If we're able to understand why, I think it makes things better to understand, period. Right? Sometimes we need to know why. God tells us some things, and that's just period. That's it, right? You do what, what He says, and it doesn't matter anything else. But there are other things that He explains to us why it's beneficial. This is one of those examples. And so we need to be able to do that. If, if we're not coming together and people are missing out on our time together, the, the prime opportunity to be able to do these things, look, it messes up the whole worship, doesn't it? it particularly for that individual, they can't take the Lord's Supper, they can't sing, they can't pray, they can't give of their means. Those things are collective things that, that the body does together. You can do it on your own as well except for taking the Lord's Supper and giving. Uh, you know, we have to do that on Sunday. You could do it by yourself. You might be the only member of the Lord's church in the spot, right? And so you do that. But the idea is this collective opportunity to come together. And we miss out on that. And that's not what we want to do. I think here our own assembling together has a reference to uh, the Sunday worship services, particularly in this context. But it's not only applicable to that because of the the leadership of any particular congregation. If they say, well, we want to have a second service on Sunday, you know, um, it's not mandatory to have a second service on Sunday. Is it wise not to? Well, you know, probably not most times, but there are situations where maybe it's not feasible to have a second service. You know, I was up in Minnesota, was it last year, year before, sometime or another, and uh, people drove as much as 100 miles to come in to, to worship. You know, listen, it may not be feasible to have a second service unless you have one pretty quickly, right? And so, uh, but we can have one. And here's the thing. When we're talking about our own assembling like the, the writer is, he's talking about that particular congregation. And if the elders or the leadership or whatever, if they decide, uh, look, we're going to have a second service, we're going to meet on Wednesday night, do you have to meet on a midweek service? It's not demanded in the Bible, but is it a good idea? Sure it is. Sure it's a good idea. Because we need to be able to come together and encourage and provoke one another, right? Some of us, you know, we live pretty pretty far apart, you know. And, and so we need to be able to, to interact with each other as much as possible. But if a, if a leadership says we're going to have a Sunday service, the a second one, and we're going to meet on Wednesday night. Look, that's our assembly. We, we're obligated to that. <clears throat> and so when we uh, look at this idea of not forsaking the assembly, look, you first have to persevere, or it doesn't mean anything. 
Second, you have to make it a priority or it doesn't mean anything. But when you understand the perseverance and the priority, look, we'll be present. We'll be present because we'll want to come together because we love each other. And we want to do that which is right. We want to help each other get to heaven. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that. Don't leave here not being a Christian through faith. Hebrews 11 uh, verse 6, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, not not some outside source. Repenting of past sins, Acts 3, 19. Uh, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, making that good confession in front of people, letting people understand you want to you want to be a Christian and you want to, uh, the world to know about your faith, and then being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. That means a you know baptism means burial, right? Doesn't mean sprinkling or pouring or or anything like that. The word means to be to plunge, to dip, to overwhelm, right? to be completely covered. That's a burial. And, and, and it's a burial because Christ was buried and He came up again to walk in a new life. And that's what we do. And then, of course, living faithfully. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews was making. It's not just about the assembly, the assembly academically. We have to understand the why before we get to it. And then it's easier to say, okay, now I get it. Sometimes we make mistakes in this life after having obeyed the gospel. Well, we need to repent of those sins, confess those to God. If privately, we need to do that privately. If publicly, we need to make a, a, a public confession. And again, I, and I say this a lot, confession doesn't mean revelation. That doesn't mean we have to give every, every sordid detail of an issue we've had in our lives. Those who know about it, know about it and know that we're, we're asking to be forgiven. Those who don't, They don't need to know the details. They just need to recognize that that individual is penitent and wants to be forgiven. And we'll pray with you and for you. If you need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.